Morning. My name is Pastor Daniel. I'm one of the executive pastors here at Resurrection Church. Uh, we have been going through the book of Ephesians now for a while. Uh, we went through a portion of chapter one uh, last year, and then we had a break for a Christmas series. And then Pastor Vance picked this up kind of the middle of chapter one, and we went through sort of this uh, deep um, prayer that, that, that ends the uh, first chapter of Ephesians. And so uh, then, then we spent the last two weeks going through verses one through ten, and there is there's a lot in those ten verses, and we spent a great deal of time. Let me uh, explain. No, there's too much. Let me summarize everything about our lives before Christ was hopeless, and everything that involves any real hope in this world came from God, because of God, by the power of God, and we therefore should live in a state of constant gratitude because we didn't really participate in any of it, nor deserve any of it, nor actually earn any of it, and we now live a life in just the reflection of the goodness of God, and that should make us a changed people. And then we're going to pick up here after 1 through 10. Now, 1 through 10 is really the gospel. I mean, 1 through 10 is probably one of the most famous passages in the Bible to explain the gospel message. And so if you're, there there are two primary places to go if you want to explain the gospel in a a passage instead of having to hop around. Everyone's kind of heard of the Romans road where you jump around Romans and show different things. But if you needed one consecutive passage, you'd either go to 1 Corinthians 15 or you'd go to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And so there are a lot of messages preached on this. There are a lot of messages not preached on the next portion, verses 11 through 16. And part of the reason is that they're really awkward. They're just really awkward. And we're going to go through them today because uh, they don't seemingly make a lot of sense to come on the tail end of what is this really powerful gospel message. Yeah, we're going to go through them today. And I think what we're going to see in them is is because it's God's word and because he teaches through all of it and it's all profitable, uh, there are some real intentional work being done in 11 through 16 that we need to walk through, that the church in Ephesus needed to walk through. And so join me today as we open up our Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2, verses 11 through 16. I'm going to read this first verse. I'm going to explain a little bit. It says this. Therefore, so therefore, when we see that, this is coming on the, the tail end of 10 verses of the gospel message, an explanation of dead in sin and all the things that have happened because of Christ, his sacrifice, his work in us as we've been uh, raised from the dead. He's put his spirit in us. He's put us and raised us into the heavenly places, granted us this inheritance, granted us now this status and authority as a son or a daughter of God. Therefore, remember... So we're looking back to try to remember something about our old life in context of the reality of what Christ has done. Therefore, remember that at one time, you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember I told you it was really awkward? I mean, that's not just awkward to read in English, by the way. That's just awkward. 
It's awkward even in Greek. It's a really weird way to phrase things, and we're going to talk about a little bit of why he does this. But uh, before I can even explain that to you, I need to explain two people groups. If you're not familiar with the Bible, that you need to understand. Now, remember, this letter is written to encourage the saints, the church members, the Christians, at Ephesus. Ephesus is in this first century world, a bustling town. It does have a lot of Jews uh, that have converted to Christianity in this church, but it is largely what are called Gentiles. Gentiles is the word for people that were not of the nation of Israel. They were not of the Jewish faith. They were Greek and lots of other different nationalities in the Roman Empire that had converted to Christianity, and we find as we study the church in Ephesus that they came from all kinds of backgrounds. We're going to find ex-prisoners guards. We're going to find ex-temple prostitutes. We're going to find uh, marketplace people and entrepreneurs and business owners and former slaves. We're going to find a whole a gambit of people, a very diverse melting pot. This should sound familiar, Americans, immigrants, foreigners, all, all kinds of diverse people. But anyone that was not of the Jewish faith was considered a Gentile. They came from a different background, came from a non-Jewish faith. And so all of a sudden, we go from 10 verses of addressing everybody to this weird verse 11 that seems like it's pointed directly at the non-Jewish congregants in the church. And he says, remember, therefore, that one time you were called Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, meaning you were not circumcised because that was part of the Jewish religion, and you were called that by people that were part of the Jewish religion, But he says it in a really weird way. Now, here's what you need to understand about Jews and Gentiles in the first century, and it had been going on for a lot longer in the first century. They hated one another. And when when I say they hated one another, I mean the, the level of disdain for one another is something that we probably don't have a good enough context to understand. Like, I get that there's enmity right now between Republicans and Democrats, but, but listen, this is shallow compared to Jews and Gentiles. You see, if you were a Jew, You were God's chosen people, and there were ceremonial laws handed down when the Ten Commandments came down that you couldn't even, you couldn't even be around those people. They made you unclean. They couldn't come into the temple. In fact, there's a, we actually uncovered this, this stone plaque that was in the temple that, that said, basically, if you're a Gentile, you can't go further than this wall of separation into the center of the temple where God's presence was. You can't go any farther than right here, and if you do, your death will be on your own hands. There was a separation between these people and Jews, because they were God's chosen people, looked at everyone that weren't God's chosen people and were like, these guys, we look down on them. They're not us. We look down on them. Now, if you were, here's the interesting part. If you were a Gentile, if you were a Greek and, and your, your whole worldview was largely about reason and logic and fact and science and debate, you looked at this this people group that were Jews who, who followed this God and, and circumcised their, their young and, and followed all these weird ceremonial laws, they were barbarians. They were idiots. They didn't believe in science and reason and facts. So, so there was this level of disdain mutually held from both groups about one another, where both groups thought they were superior in some way, either because of intellect or because of morals, and they would look down at the other people group. And, and, and what Paul is doing after 10 verses about the gospel is he's going to plunge right into this problem in the church and in the culture. 
Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. He's highlighting their differences, not just the actual differences between these two people groups, but the actual reasons that they had so much animosity for one another. And, and, and he's going to, I want to come back to this, why he decides to t- take this right turn in verse 11, um, because I think it's very applicable in the church. But um, I want you to look at this in verse 12. He says, remember again. So he just said in verse, verse 11, remember that you guys don't like each other. That's basically what he just said. Remember that you guys have lots of reasons that you feel like are very justifiable for not liking one another. You guys have lots of reasons for thinking about this other people group as less than you, and you believe those are actually legitimate reasons. Remember that. And then he goes to verse 12 and says, remember that you, now he's specifically talking to Gentiles. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Now, I'm going to read this and explain this as he was talking to first century Gentiles, but I want you to understand that most of us, I would submit, don't have a Jewish background and we're all Gentiles. So this is perfectly applicable to you and I as well. We weren't brought up in the nation of Israel. Therefore, for anyone not in the nation of Israel before Christ, this was true. There were five different reasons that people outside of the nation of Israel prior to the coming of Christ were alienated from God. The first is that they were Christless. The prophecies in 2 Samuel and in Isaiah that Christ would come, Christ was promised to the nation of Israel, not to you and I. The original prophecies were that Christ would come to deliver God's people, the nation of Israel, from those that were uh, enslaving them and from sin. The second reason that we see that uh, we had alienation from God as Gentiles is that we were stateless. The commonwealth of Israel was a country, a nation that God formed by his word and his promise, not because of anything anyone else did, and only those that he had put into this nation were part of the commonwealth of God. And the commonwealth of God, the nation of Israel at the time, was the only true theocracy in all of the world. It was the only nation led by God. Every other nation were led by kings and rulers and emperors, but they There was one nation led by God, not man. And that was the nation of Israel. So they were alienated from that. They were friendless. So they were Christless. They were stateless. They were friendless. If you look at 2 Chronicles and you look at James 2.23, the the people that were part of the nation of God, the people of Israel were considered the friends of God. God was their friends. That is not how other gods in other religions, including first century Rome, worked. You weren't friends with gods. They tolerated you at best. You might earn their favor through various things. But the people of God were the friends of God. Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless. No savior, no home, no promises. The the most hope-filling part of being part of the nation of Israel was that God 
promised all of the different things that he promised the nation based on his faithfulness, his goodness, not their behavior. Therefore, if you had no savior and no home and no promises, really what you're looking at is despair. What is there to look forward to outside of what God has ordained, done, and promised to you and I? Despair. It's why you consider to see, uh, you cons- you, we continue to see individuals in, in the highest demographic socioeconomically, the, the most wealthy people who have run to the ends of human efforts. They have filled themselves up with riches or fame or renown. Uh, they, they, they have tried to get to the end of every uh, thing that, that, that humans would say will, will scratch that itch. Whether it's sexual desire, whether it's comfort, whether it's uh, other people's affirmation. And at the end of that, they have the highest suicide rate and the highest rate of depression of any other class of people. Now, some of you in the back of your mind are saying, look, make me really rich. I won't be depressed. You say that, but everyone there gets to the end of the pursuit and realizes, just like Solomon did in Ecclesiastes, it's vanity, it's folly, it doesn't actually work. You keep chasing it in the pursuit of human endeavors, thinking that somehow there's contentment and peace at the end of that road, and everyone that actually gets to the end of the road tells you the same thing. It was a lie. I thought it was there. It was a lie. I, I have spent my whole life in the endeavor to get there. Most of us never will. But even when you do, you look back and realize it was a lie. It was a lie. Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless. And lastly, godless. Godless. There was no... Heavenly Father looking out for those outside the nation of Israel. They had many gods with little g's. I had someone ask me this week uh, my view as a, as a Christian pastor of other gods. Did I believe in other gods? I said, I absolutely believe in other gods. They're mentioned all the time in the Bible. They're all demons. They exist. They're real. They're powerful. They're dangerous. I believe in them. And someday, every one of them is going to be bound up, thrown in the same place. Be careful who you worship. Godless. It's Christless, stateless, friendless, hopeless, godless. That's, that's a lot of reasons to be alienated from God. And this was, hence the remember, the state of you and I before Christ. And this con- the, 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 one of the rationales for Paul saying, remember this, is for you and I to consider again how good God really is. When we understand how far he had to bring us, how alienated we were before God, it should increase our worship. It should increase our affection toward God. Verse 13 but now. So this is another one of those but God statements that we had in verse 4. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. Now that's a really big deal. And I, and I want to explain the, the far off and near because I think this is a big gap in, in the th- 
I'm going to say theology, and I don't mean intellectual theology, but it really, theology really does matter. What you think about God, what you study about God really does matter because it can, it can lead you either to a closeness to your understanding of God, where you begin to grow in the knowledge of God, or it can actually cause you all sorts of little missteps. It can be very dangerous when we have poor theology in areas. And, and one of the things that we've done a poor job of in church is having this idea of what it, where God is. You see, there's this misconception that, um, and I, we do this in stories a lot. I think that's where it comes from. That God is far off, right? God is like up above the clouds somewhere. And we have this picture. He's like Zeus. He has the big, the big white beard and like the thunderbolts. Come on. You've all in your head, you all have some sort of, he's up there somewhere, right? And he's kind of looking down every once in a while, but not all the time. You know, like he's not always looking, but sometimes he's looking. And I just, I don't want him to, to throw the lightning bolt down. People joke, like, I can't walk into church and God might strike me dead. Like, like people, we have this weird idea that God's far away and that sometimes he looks at us and pays attention to us. But, but that's, and let me tell you where some of that comes from. Before Jesus, that actually was true. You look at the formation of the temple. If you look at how the temple was built, and the temple was built to a specification that you can read about because like every excruciating detail of the temple is written in the Bible to the extent that when you're doing your reading plan over the course of the year, when you get to that section, you're like, oh Lord, just help me make it through. (laughs) There's like 19 pages of measurements. But, but the detail of the temple was very specific, specified by God. And there were, there were all of these areas, right? And in the very center of the temple was the Holy of Holies. And that was where the presence of God would dwell. But no one could go in because if you went in, you died. That's a tough fine, by the way. You're worried about a parking ticket. But if you went in, you died. And once a year, the, 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 the head priest, the chief priest would, would consecrate himself. He would, he would atone for the sins of the people. He would, he would cleanse himself because of his own unrighteousness. And once a year, he would get to go into the Holy of Holies. But there was this huge curtain that separated the Holy of Holies from the next area of the temple. And the next area of the temple was kind of for the, for the priests and, and for the Levites. And then there was another area where, where Jewish men could go. And then there was another area outside that where Jewish women could go and then there was another area out that where Gentiles like you and I could go. That's where we were. Separated from God. On the outside looking in. But everybody was separated from God. To some extent. No one got to live in the Holy of Holies. That was for God and we were unrighteous and there was a separation between us. And, And you remember that when Jesus dies on the cross, when it talks about the blood of Jesus Christ, that when Jesus dies on the cross, this giant thick curtain that's floor to ceiling rips down the middle, signifying both physically and spiritually that we are now one with God. There is now access to God because of the blood of Christ. God is not sitting up somewhere above the clouds looking down at you every once in a while. He took his spirit and he put it in you and he's with you all the time. There's never a thing you do or a thought you have or an action you take that is outside the visibility or presence of God because he's inside of you. He's with you. And so when it says draw near, God has drawn us to him. Again, we didn't run to him. 
Usually we were running away, kicking and screaming, and he drew us to him. You've all seen the toddler doesn't want to go to bed, and they're just running, and you got to scoop them up. And that's what God did for you and I. Clean the Cheerios off our face. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And that is actually always the way it was intended. Go all the way back to Genesis. What, what, what are Adam and Eve doing? They're walking with God in the garden. God's not up in a throne and they're down in the garden. That was never the design. The design was always that we would be with God. He was right there physical, physically like the proximity, the nearness was always intended for us to be, to do life with God. And that whole gap from Genesis 3 until the cross, the the dysfunction of that is that we could not live as we were created to be. That's why nothing seems right. That's why the world doesn't seem right. That's why there's always this gnawing feeling that that, that there's something wrong. There is. It's not working as intended. And Jesus came to make things right. And that is the power of the blood. Is the blood of Christ that does that. Is, Is the blood of Christ signified and symbolized over and over and over through the sacrificial system in the Old Testament from the very beginning that there were sacrifices. There were sacrifices the moment they're out of the garden. Right, Cain and Abel are already sacrificing. There's already this, this, this symbol of blood that there will be something has to, has to bring blood to make this right. And they set up this whole sacrificial system. And they're, they're in Egypt, and there's, they're, putting, they're putting blood on the doorposts. Sounds really weird. But there is power in Christ's blood, and we sing about it. And listen, to the outside world, that's got to seem really weird. But it was his blood shed from an innocent savior that saved us. Verse 14 says this, for he himself, now we're, now we're on Jesus, for he himself, his blood in verse 13, for he himself is our peace. That word peace, that word shalom, the perfect peace, the peace that actually existed back in Genesis where we got to walk with God and there was no death and there was no decay and there was no sin and the presence of God dwelt with us and we worked and lived as intended for he himself is our peace who has made us both. Who's both? This is interesting because he was just talking to Gentiles, but we just, we just took a little turn again. He has made us both. He's including, there's this inclusivity now of Jews and Gentiles again. He's wrapping it around. I'm telling you, this is awkward. We're going to get to why. He's made us both, Jews and Gentiles, one, and has broken down in his flesh. So with Jesus' blood and Jesus' flesh, again, the two things that are part of the holy ordinance of communion that we, we consistently look at, right? You see the ties here to communion. He has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Dividing wall between what? Us and God? Yes. Dividing wall between Gentile and Jew? Yes. Dividing wall between Republican and Democrat? Yes. Dividing wall between the Super Bowl team you like and the Super Bowl team? Yes. Yes. 
by, verse 15, abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances. What is that? The ceremonial law, all the really weird stuff. Why did you not come in today and we started sacrificing an animal? One, because you would have left. We don't because that doesn't even exist anymore. That was fulfilled by Christ on the cross. He broke down this wall of hostility. He did away with the ceremonial law, the uncleanliness, the sacrificial system. All of those things were finished on the cross. By abolishing the law of commandments expressed in ordinances that he might create in himself one new man in place of two, so making peace, and might reconcile us both to God in one body through the Christ, through the cross, thereby killing the hostility. Now, there are layers to this that I want to walk through. First, this Jesus does three things that you, we need to see here. On the cross, what, what Jesus' sacrifice did, three things. Number one, he abolished the ceremonial law by fulfilling the moral law. By living a perfect life and never allowing sin to enter in, there's no disobedience in Jesus' life. It was always him and the Father in perfection. By fulfilling the moral law, he abolished the ceremonial law. We know that it ended. There are a lot of references to this, but if you go to uh, Romans 14, Paul's dealing with this issue with, where, where Jews still can't get around some of the ceremonial law, so they keep trying to hold others to it. And, and, and Paul just explains it in, in Romans 14 in, in great detail that this is not about outward morality at all. This is not about outward cleanliness. This is not about outward righteousness your righteousness to God is not determined by how well you dressed for church. If you wore a hat on stage, you, you probably thought it was a weird reference. I've literally had someone say that. You think it's funny, but Jews did it even worse, right? I mean, like, read some of the interesting accounts of what they thought would make them righteous. This is all gone. So he abolishes the ceremonial law. Secondly, he creates a new man in verse 15. We're going to get to that. He creates a new man. There's a new, there's a reason we're called new creation. And it's beyond just simply what he's done in us, which is true, but it is part of what he creates in the church. There's a new man, a new race, a new tribe. And three, he reconciles the new creation to God. It's why we now have access to God. It's why the curtain has split. It's why we have God's presence in us as he has reconciled us. Reconciliation is a long word. It, it, it's, it's when you have two columns in a spreadsheet and they don't match, right? And you have to figure out why, why the, the profits and losses don't match, why the expenses and the revenue don't match. You've got to sit there and do the accounting and figure out why the numbers don't work. And if you're a numbers person, the numbers have to line up. And if you're God and you're the God of perfect justice, then the numbers have to line up. And the debt created by sin has to be fixed. And Jesus does that on the cross. And then the numbers work because he took all the debt. Even though it cost him everything. In the new church after in Acts, when we see this formation of the church after Pentecost in Acts, the diversity of the group 
that begins to follow Jesus in Jerusalem. And then as, as it begins to move out into Samaria and Judea, and then you know, it gets to Ephesus and Corinth and Rome and these places, the diversity of the group is so substantial that there's no way for society in the first century to figure out how to explain the church. Because in that culture, and we still do this a little bit, but in that culture, you always had a tribe. You had a group of people. You, you, were, you were of the tribe of Benjamin, or, or you, were, you were of the tribe of, of, of a certain god, right? And, and you always had a group that, that thought the same and worshipped the same, whether it was economic, whether it was part of the caste system, there was always a group, and then all of a sudden there's this church, and everybody's different, and everybody's from a different background, and everybody, at times they're speaking different languages, and, and, and there's no way to explain why they love each other so much, and they keep hanging out together, and they keep eating together, and they keep showing up together, and like, it doesn't make sense. And so finally they just said, let's just call them Christians, because we, we don't have a label to put on them. It's the new race, the new man that Christ on the cross created. Now I want to go back in, in the time remaining, and I want to look at this one more time, because I had read all that. I read through two commentaries, um, and I'd done all my notes, and I'd written all of this, and I, I was just chewing on this this week, and it didn't sit right. Something's still off. There's another layer, because really a lot of what is said in 11 through 15, 11 through 16 seems like a repetitive, like almost redundant to what was said in one through 10. And so I'm, I just, there's, and it's awkward. And I just like, it didn't sit right. And so I'm chewing out every single day and it's Thursday morning. I was driving to see another pastor and just encourage one another. And I'm driving in the car and it, oh, it finally, it finally got there for me. And I want to I want to open this up and take a look at this because I really think that there is a reason that Paul puts this where he puts it and is so awkward about how he is talking about this. I think what you see in these verses and, and all of what we just talked about is absolutely true. But I think there's a reason that's where it is. I think even after explaining the gospel in one through ten, the reason that this is here. And he's getting so specific about these problems. It, it is, is he has to attack the cultural identity in the church. Because it's still a problem. And we know it's still a problem. Because every New Testament book outside of Acts and Revelation was written because the churches were dysfunctional. If we didn't have dysfunctional churches, we basically wouldn't have most of the New Testament. Because he has to address problems in the church. And what he's addressing here in the church is conflict after Christ that shouldn't exist. He's saying there's unhealthy conflict in your church because you continue to identify as a Jew or identify as a Gentile. And that same enmity that you had, the same way that you thought you were either morally righteous because you were part of the nation of Israel and you followed the ceremonial laws and you were clean on the outside and you kept to the right things and you looked at those, those heathen Greeks who had all of those gods and they didn't follow any of those rules. And even now after Christ, when you come into the, you look down at them. You discount their opinions and their needs and their wants. 
a new Greek who, who weren't even part of the nation of Israel because of your, your reason and your logic and your intellect and your education and your status as a citizen in Rome. You, you look at these Jews as barbarians even now. And the reason I think that the application is so specific to us is we see this in the American church. We shouldn't, but we do. I mean, do we have a a little subgroup in the American church that's very conservative and very moral and and very out... uh, (laughs) outspoken about their morality and and what they follow and kind of looks down on people that maybe like facts and science and a little too much. No? Okay. Never mind. Barking up the wrong tree. Do we have a group in the American church that's so much about science and fact and intellect and reason that they love to look down on anyone that, that likes to hold to tradition and likes to hold to more conservative things and like... Listen to me, does it change how they love one another? It does, and that's the problem. Their background, their values, their opinions, those those aren't the problem. The problem that Paul's addressing is that he says, both those tribes died and Christ created a new man. He's saying, no, the Jew, we didn't, I didn't abolish the ceremonial law so that the Jews would be right and the Romans would be wrong. I didn't abolish that law so that the Jews would be wrong and the Romans would be right. They're all wrong because you were all dead. And I created a new man, a new creation. So everything that is the trappings of your cultural background, that's fine and, and dandy until the moment it causes you to be at enmity or strife with your brother or sister in Christ. And then it's not okay. And then you better be willing to leave that behind in the grave where the rest of you was supposed to be left when Christ raised you up. Because what he's going to get to by chapter four is a lesson on unity that none of us have ever really gotten. And he's setting up a theological foundation in chapter two. So when he gets to the application time and it feels like he's swinging a hammer at us, at least we know why. And it is a struggle for two reasons. One, because we all like to congregate with people that think like us. It's more comfortable. I'll be honest, it's intellectually lazy. I don't have to consider anybody else. We all agree. We must be right. That's the way it works, right? If we all agree, we're clearly right. That's why you stay in a group that thinks the way you do. No? Oh, weird. There's three things in the church right now and historically that we have constantly divided over. I don't want to talk about those things, but I just want to, I, I want to, I want to cover this word unity. Here's what unity means. It means that you and I have been charged to look for reasons, and, and Paul already gave it to us. We're, we've been called to look at the reason that we, uni- we unite before we look for reasons to disagree. And we have to get that that sequence right. We're called to look at why we are united before we look at reasons to disagree. 
Because disunity is about looking for reasons to divide before we even consider whether or not it would be worth it to be unified. Political and cultural are the two common things that we see in these verses that, that Paul is touching on. There are political issues, there are cultural issues. Not that that is a problem now. We have this cultural system, and it's in every culture in the world. That the way, that our way of doing things is by its very nature the right way. Anyone ever, ever kind of butt up against that? The status quo is the right way. Therefore, anything that's outside of the status quo must inherently be wrong, which creates conflict. Uh, I, I heard a better analogy than I've probably ever heard recently about Christians, about why we, we can't hold to anything that's extra biblical, anything that's outside of the text of the Bible as a reason for disunity. And it's this. You and I, as people who have been raised from the dead by Christ, going out into a lost world to uh, attempt to share the gospel, are literally beggars who found bread and get to tell other beggars where to find bread. You should consider that. Because in that, there's no room for any pride. Who's arrogant about being a beggar who finally found some bread because they were starving? You're simply grateful you ate today. And when you go to the other beggar who's also hungry, you're not offering them a new way of life, a new political system, a new guy to vote for. You're offering them food because they're starving. And anything that you lay on top of the bread is of you, not of the Lord. They just need sustenance. They just need a savior. Nothing else. And let me explain when the church does this really well and when the church does this really poorly. And I think this will click for you because it clicked for me. Ultimately, what this is pushing towards is our tendency towards self-righteousness. It's, it, it's pushing toward the moment we get a little bit comfortable with the gospel. When we begin to lose the marvel of the gospel, what creeps in immediately is this little bit of arrogance that somehow like, you know, I did some of this. A little bit of pride, a little bit of arrogance that I've got it right and you've got it wrong. And if you just shut up young and listen to me, I would fix this. And it's there every time we lose our desperation for Jesus. You see, if you were starving for bread again, you would forget about all the other stuff. You would forget about it because you're starving. You, you ever notice it's really hard to think about anything when you're really hungry? <laughs> other than that you're really hungry? which is how we were intended and designed to be when it comes to our relationship with God. We've been using the soldier analogy lately, and I want to use this again because I think this makes sense. Um, there are a lot of articles written about why the church seem, seemingly grows faster in nations that are very against the gospel. 
How come Christianity seems to spread like wildfire in countries in which uh, Christianity is a crime, in which you could be imprisoned for being Christian, in which they're martyring Christians? Why does it spread faster there than it does in a country like the United States where we protect religious liberties, where the government's not allowed to infringe on your liberties? And yet here, the gospel seems to be almost lackadaisical at times. How come church plants in, in, in the most secular cities in the world, in places like Boston and Seattle, in Portland, how come they seem to grow faster than in the Bible Belt? Isn't that weird? Man, comfort is our enemy. It is our enemy. We get comfortable, we get full on bread, and all of a sudden we don't think we need the bread maker. Let me put it this way. You and I, you and I are at our most unified point when there is real conflict around us that forces us to unify. You know, one of the most, uh, Martin Luther King said, the most segregated hour in the American week is Sunday morning at 10 a.m. But you know what the most unsegregated, most most diverse place in, in American history is on the battlefield. You go look at army units and military units that are in the trenches during wartime when the bullets are flying. They come from all kinds of backgrounds, all kinds of religions. They come from from all kinds of races and ethnicities and socioeconomic statuses. And here's the weird thing about it. When the bullets are flying, they don't have any problem about who you voted for. All I need to know in the trenches when the bullets are flying is if I can see the enemy and I know my brother has my back, let's go to war. I don't I don't care anything else. In the church, when we finally get our focus off of ourselves, when we get up to the front line, into the trenches, and the bullets start flying, and we can see the enemy, and we can see the need, and we understand the mission, all of a sudden, all of the, the, the secondary, tertiary, unconsequential, extra-biblical stuff goes out the window. Because it's wartime. You know when that all creeps back in? When we get two miles from the battlefield on a couch with some binoculars and we begin to tell all the soldiers how they're fighting wrong. You know, I got got a list where I sat for like 20 minutes and just wrote all the things down the soldiers in the trench were doing wrong that I'm going to, you know, you didn't have your uniform tucked in, guy. Uh, I have to work on that. It seems silly. Because you and I were never intended to go sit on the couch. There's not an idea of professional clergy that go to the front lines and then everybody else, we, we just set up pews about two miles back so you could get a good view. Stadium seating, of course. That's the design of the Bible is that every single believer is a critical part of the body of Christ and every one of us is in the trenches, in the front lines, with the bullets flying. And what that does, that conflict both galvanizes us toward kingdom work and it minimizes inconsequential differences that we will only notice when we're comfortable. And if we could just get hungry again, we'd stop worrying about whether or not there were differences. And so what's happening in this text Paul's just explained the gospel. He's just explained the greatest story that's ever been told. He's just explained the greatest truth that will ever be revealed to mankind. And then he stops for five verses and goes, I might as well, I might as well address this now. 
Y'all got to get over that you came from different places. Y'all got to get over that you think about things differently. Y'all got to think differently about your differences. Because the bullets are flying. There's kingdom work to get done. There are people that are lost in this culture. There are the least of these, the marginalized, the people at the fringes and the edges that have no hope. You carry it and you can't spend your time arguing with one another. And so when we we wrote out this phrase that we want to be genuine, gentle, generous soldiers for Jesus Christ, it comes with it. This idea that we are on the front lines, not some of us, all of us. And that this church and all churches only work when we get to the work of the kingdom and leave behind the rest of our differences. I would ask you to consider this today as we we go through Ephesians. Where have I allowed my own desires, traditions, opinions, viewpoints to push a brother or sister in Christ away? to minimize their thoughts, their their feelings, the impact that I have on them. I won't go through, (laughs) because we don't have the time, the quantity of stories that I have of people breaking fellowship over some of the weirdest stuff ever. But let me just say, when you get comfortable, that stuff starts to happen, and it does not look good for the kingdom. When you think differently than a brother or sister in Christ, do you know... (laughs) Let let me tell you how simple this is. And you're not going to think it's simple because, you know, we hate doing this. You go talk to them. You go talk to them. I had someone that told me one time they were so offended, like ready to break fellowship because someone else in the church wore a shirt with an 80s band on it. I was like, oh, well, what did they say when you went and asked them about it? Well, I didn't talk to them. Why not? What? Do you want to gain a brother or sister in Christ? Or do you want to be offended? Let me tell you now, if you want to be offended, there will be countless reasons for you to be offended. This church, I just cut my hair. Be offended. (laughs) But if you want to gain a brother or sister in Christ, there will be countless opportunities for you to go have a conversation. Maybe change your viewpoint. Maybe not, but you'll love them more like Christ loved us. It's worth it. The awkward conversation is worth it. Running to the front line is worth it. Getting in the game is worth it. Sitting on the couch is boring, y'all. It is boring. You were not raised from the dead you did not have God's spirit put inside you. You are not a new creation in Christ. So you can sit on the sidelines. We're here for the battle. And we're here for all of it.